So um, I have an impossible task this morning. My task is to help you read a book. Now, I know that seems, I don't know what it seems like to you, but, um, but when you look at statistics, people just don't read anymore. You know, in terms of the average male, I don't know what we have in here. Maybe we're 50-50, maybe we're 60-40. Let's say 40% male and 60% and, uh, female in here. And let, let's say we have uh, 200 plus people in here. You do the math really quick. Um, the average male reads one book a year. One book a year. And that usually has to do with um, their work. And so getting men to read is, is difficult. Except, you know, we, we dump a lot on the evil that has happened in our lives about attracting attention here. But I will have to say that most men read their phones. In fact, if you believe what Dan said last week, it's the first thing we read almost before our feet hit the ground. Um, we read texts, we read email, we read our fantasy football results religiously. Uh, we, we read our betting results. If you're you know, one of those people who like to bet on the uh, 450,000 betting apps that are available now on your phone. Uh, we, we read lots on our phone, but, but getting into the Bible as a book we read, uh, is difficult. And I would say that even this morning, as uh, our folks were practicing and, and the, the folks that are behind the scenes were talking, they were talking about how difficult the first half of the Bible is to get into. It's scary. And I'm not sure why that is. It's maybe because um, things that are unknown tend to be scary. We, we tend to be afraid of the things that we don't know. You know, I don't know if you've ever lived on a street where there was an old man who lived in a house, you know, by himself and no one ever saw him and he didn't relate to the neighborhood. And to the kids, he was always scary. Could have been the nicest man in the world. Uh, could have been friendly and, you know, who knows. But because they didn't, you didn't know him, he was kind of like, woo, watch out for old man so-and-so. People die in that house, you know. You know that, that thing? So this morning, I, I would like to sort of dust off that first half of the Bible and attempt to intrigue you to get your fingerprints on that portion of, of the Bible. And it really starts with framework. It really starts with what you think about something. Um, and, and all of us have preconceived ideas we, we all have this notion of something. And so I think it's important that we start with the idea that you and I accept our finiteness. Now, by that, I mean we have limits. Our knowledge has limits. And what that means is it comes with a presumption. And this is, this is going to be difficult for some of you. Because the presumption you have to have to own your finiteness is you have to presume that you could be wrong. That in fact, 
you don't know everything about everything there is to know. Now, you would probably admit that, but I'm sure that in the past 30 days, you've been in a discussion that may tended to be an argument with someone where the passion that you had sort of intimated that you might believe that you knew everything there is to know about this situation because you know exactly what that person was thinking when they said that and why they said it and what they intended by that. And you were certain. You had bomb-proof certainty. The fact is, is that you and I don't have bomb-proof certainty about anything. It just doesn't exist. We are finite. We have limits. And there's limits to our knowledge and to our understanding. And so the presumption we have to have, and I think it's a healthy presumption, it's a presumption that's like right up there at the top of I want to be humble. Okay, underneath that, sub-point A is I have to presume that I could be wrong. I may not have all the information I need. And because of that, I might have taken information that I do have, and I might have developed some, some attitudes. I might have developed some fears. Uh, I might have developed some standoffishness to certain people, certain subjects, certain books. And one of those might be the first half of the Bible, commonly referred to as the Old Testament. Now, that will become more clear when Sean explains what the New Testament or New Covenant is next week. Because Testament really is covenant. So it's Old Covenant. It's the, the first arrangement that God made with humanity about how to relate to Him. But in this first half of the Bible... Uh, we see something that, that really does stretch over all 66 books of the Bible, and that is, is that this book is a love letter from God, or 66 love letters from God, because there are 66 different books that comprise the Bible. And we could talk about how that came to be, um, and, and, and there's a rationale behind that as to people... Uh, but. Dan mentioned last week the first half of the Bible, the 39 books, uh, really got a, an enormous amount of credibility in the 21st century when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran in 1947. Some um, shepherds were out and they were throwing rocks up into holes. If you see these big, huge cliffs and there's a black thing here, and that was a hole in this cliff, they were throwing rocks in these cliffs, you know, working... Uh, on their, you know, fastballs, curveballs, you know, everything they were looking to, you know, get into the MLB. But in 1947, uh, they threw a rock up through there, and there were three of them, and, and it went down, and they heard a crash. And what happened was, is it hit a vase or a vessel of clay vessel in there that cracked. And that area of Qumran, which is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, right near the Dead Sea, that area contained thousands thousands of manuscripts that this group called the Essenes had taken uh, and, and had put there for safekeeping. It was kind of a humidor for Scripture, if you get my drift here, all right? <laughs> Humidors where you put cigars, okay? So for those of you who don't smoke cigars. Okay? So it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, a climate-controlled desert, dry, you know, no humidity, that kind of stuff. But this place had just 
crazy stuff. So take the book of Isaiah, all right? One of the largest books in the first half of the Bible. Now, Isaiah is famous, and probably every year, without question, you have read from the book of Isaiah. Now, you may not have known that before, but you've gotten a Christmas card, or you've sung a Christmas carol that talks about, unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given, and his name will be called Emmanuel. That comes out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And up until the Qumran time, all we had was a manuscript from Isaiah dating to 1,000 A.D. 1,000 A.D. So that's about 1,000 years ago-ish, give or take a few years, right? So this, this was written a lot longer than that, and it had a lot of predictions about Jesus' birth in it. And those predictions were like trash because all we had is a, a manuscript that came a thousand years after Jesus' birth. It's as if I said to you about seven or eight years ago, if uh, some of you remember, uh, we actually have a video of my oldest son when Patrick Mahomes was uh, drafted. You all remember that night? You, you remember... Who we were looking forward to drafting? Anybody? Everyone was in hopes that Deshaun Watson would be the new hope of Kansas City. What a tragedy. <laughs> now you can say that now, right? But then you couldn't because he was coming out of college. What is it, Clemson where he went to or someplace? Anybody know? Uh, you know, he, he was like the, 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 the thing. And, and then, so let, let's just say that before that time, I wrote on a piece of paper, folded it up, handed it to uh, these young guys that I'm talking about, Trevor and, and J Jared and a bunch of his friends and stuff were all around there. Um, maybe you were there. Uh, were, were you there that night? No? Brett? No? Uh, so... Um, and, and I said, the Chiefs are going to draft Patrick Mahomes from Texas Tech University. In his first few years at Kansas City, he is going to be twice MVP of the NFL. He's going to win two Super Bowls, and he's going to win six AFC championships, something like that. I wrote that on a piece of paper. All right? No, this, this, I wrote that on a piece of paper. And then... Whoever, stand, I forget, I don't even know who it was who, who called out the Patrick Mahomes. It was at Brett Veach or somebody else. Like, the Kansas City Chiefs draft Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> and on this video, it's Patrick Mahu. I mean, really, they're just like, what? Oh, you're kidding. And these guys are just throwing things down and just, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if I said that before that happened, um, right now, uh, if I told you that the Chiefs were going to end up, you know, 12 and 5 or, or 13 and whatever, you know, and, uh, you'd believe me, right? You, you would, I would have great credibility with you because you saw me once predict. Well, that's what happened with the scrolls of Isaiah. A thousand years after Jesus' birth, it takes us back well before Jesus' birth. 
And the manuscripts were virtually the same. In a thousand years of transmission, they were identical, as if they'd been put on a copy machine and copied for a thousand years. Imagine that. If you and I tried to copy things by hand, it shows you that these guys named the Masoretes, um, and, and they were the copyists, and so they would copy these things meticulously. They would count into every book, and, and as they copied it, they would count the number of letters, and if the center letter of that book wasn't the same in the copy, they'd throw the copy away. Now, that's easy for us to do at a copier, right? Tear it up, do it again. But by hand, to go by hand all of that way in and then miss it by one letter. It's like, how about just some editorial marks in there or something? You know? How about some whiteout? Didn't exist at that moment. Threw it out. These manuscripts were virtually identical. And it took us back and it gave credibility to a book like Isaiah that said that we're going to have someone who is going to leave heaven and come to earth, and he's going to be God with us. That's the, the beauty uh, of this first half of the Bible. That's what it contains. And it contains, really, not a set of rules. We often get stuck on the Ten Commandments. And we think, oh, my gosh, it's just a set of do's and don'ts. Well, it's, it's not a set of do's and don'ts. Um, but think about it this way. Think about it in terms of a love letter. If you have children, you have a set of do's and don'ts. You don't want your kids running in a parking lot, right? Three-year-old takes off across a parking lot. What happens in a parking lot? No one's looking for a kid. No one's paying attention. People are backing up. They're going forward. They're doing stupid things. And, and, and you have some rules for your kids. Those rules are meant for their life to work well, to continue. And so that's what happens in that first half of this book is God says, look, I invented life. I'm the creator of all that there is. Let me help you understand how to live it best. Let me help you understand that what you want, what you feel, what you think is right sometimes may not be. You're limited in your understanding. But the beauty of what we find in the first half of the Bible is this God who is unlimited. If this whole thing is true, you know, and we can fast forward. I don't want to take Sean's thunder away from him next week, but we come to this point of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus comes back from the dead. You know, it's like it's the crowning moment of, of all of the Bible. It's like if you don't believe anything else is true, when you get to that point and you think, wow, if that happened, then everything else is possible. Because dead people don't come back. I've been to hundreds of funerals. I've stood over hundreds of caskets. I've prayed as passionately as I can, silently of course, for that dead body to come alive. There's nothing I would like better than to watch a dead body come out of a casket at a funeral. I mean, you can imagine what would happen, right? I mean, if there's ever a moment, you know, where... We're, 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 you know, it's like, I'll, I just won't go there, excuse me. All right. <laughs> About to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's like, 
that is the crowning moment that bleeds back into all of this as we begin to see that God begins to work with humanity. Now, here's the beauty of the story. It has a scarlet thread that runs all the way through until Jesus' resurrection. But, but the story is this. God has been in the business of building a family from the moment he created time and space. At the heart of this God that sits in the first half of the Bible is this very uh, massive energy of generosity. He wants to give away the life that he has and let other people enjoy it. And so he calls, he creates Adam and Eve and builds a family out of them. But right off, right off the bat, Adam and Eve are stupid. I mean, it's like they were, they were created in, and they, they were given a five-star hotel. They were given a butler and they were given the beauty of the ocean and the mountains and they had everything you could ever want. And one four-letter word got in the way. They wanted more. It wasn't enough. And as a result, it, it broke the family relationship. And so God didn't give up on Adam and Eve. He, he, he continued to relate to them and, and work in their lives to help repair the damage that they had caused by breaking the relationship. They just not only broke the relationship with him, they broke the relationship with the creation. It got all messed up too because of them. Right off the bat, in this early moment, we see their kids. Their kids can't get along. And as we carry throughout the first half of the Bible, we see this story. We get to it. Genesis 12, and God says, okay, I'm going to start over, but I'm, I'm going to choose a nation this time. So it's this guy, Abraham. And he, and he goes to Abraham, and he says, look, I want you to leave this place where you're at. I want you to just follow me. And Abraham does. There's a great story in Genesis chapter 12. If you want to understand what it's like to go on a vacation without GPS or your AAA maps or whatever you might use. I walked into a restaurant this week and saw a guy with a map in his hand. I almost took a picture of him. I mean, he had a travel map in his hand. And I wanted to talk to him and say, tell me about that. What is that? How do you use that? <laughs> a map. Can you believe that? But I'm sure some of you still use them. You know, I, I love maps. I, I love maps. They're just incredible to, to think about as you go. But Abraham didn't ask for a map. He just left Ur. It's like he grew up in Liberty, Missouri. He graduated from Liberty High School. He started his business. He was a big farmer here in Liberty, Missouri. And God comes along and says, look, you know, I want you to move to Lexington. And Abraham picks up and moves. And he just moves. But Unfortunately, the story I just told is not the one that sits in the Bible. God says, I want you to move. Now, we wouldn't have a problem if God said, I want you to move. Here, Abraham moved without knowing where he was going. So here you begin to get the, the idea of what the story, what these stories do in our lives as you read about Abraham, a real guy with a, a, a wife, and ultimately he has a kid and all this kind of stuff. How does a guy do that? You get to read what it looks like to, 
to move in a life. How often do you wish that you had a destination? You feel like something's happening. I'm going someplace. Something needs to happen. Something needs to change. And you just don't know. And you get a chance to get inside a guy who's experienced that. And you get to read about what happens in his life and, and some of the stupid things he does. I mean, one of the things, you know, you, you heard in the, the sketch is, is true, is that, that is, uh, the Bible's full of, of very broken people. Have you ever experienced childhood sexual abuse? The Bible has a story of that. Have you ever experienced marital betrayal? The Bible has experience about that. You ever committed murder? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> Let's talk afterwards. Uh, but one of the leading characters in the Bible is both a murderer and an adulterer. And yet somehow in his life, somehow after all that turmoil and all that crap that he he committed. His life moves along until God calls him a man after God's own heart. How does that happen? How does someone transform to being that evil, to being that connected with the creator God in heaven? Well, the story's here. The story's in that first half of the Bible. You know, when you get to the second half of the Bible, and again, uh, I'm not going to steal Sean's thunder here, but, but you get to the genealogies, and, and you find, in, in Matthew, you find five women uh, in, in that genealogy. And if you trace them back to their stories, you see that they did not have easy lives. They were women who struggled. They, they struggled with persecution. They struggled with some mistakes that they chose to make for themselves. They struggle with a lot of stuff. And yet, when God decides to write, where did Jesus come from? These ladies get a chance to show up because God was proud of the transformation that had taken place in their lives. See, that's, what's, that's what's in here. That's what's available to us is, is to, when we get our fingerprints on the Bible, we get inside these love letters, these people who are struggling with God. Now, the big picture is, is that Abraham becomes a, a family. His family becomes Israel. It's a nation, not a, not a political state right now, but it's, it's, a, it's a group of people and, and these, these tribes that, that come out of, of Abraham become the chosen people of God. They were a vessel. They were a vessel that was going to deliver the Messiah to the world. Now, this is, this is really probably sacrilegious and everything else, but it's kind of like Texas Tech was a vessel for Patrick Mahomes, right? <laughs> to keep my, my football metaphor going here. Yeah. It's like he incubated there and he... Israel was this, this lineage that we can follow through the first half of the Bible. And we see when Jesus comes on the scene, he, he comes down through Abraham and David to become the Messiah. See, God's in the habit of finding his family. 
He's in the habit of giving us a chance to move. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so why all of us feel like we have a relationship with God is because we are his creatures. We're made in his image. We have what he has given us, his imprint on us. But there's another type of relationship that's available to all of us. And that is to become a part of the family. That is to call him father, not just creator. And the story from Genesis to the book of Malachi that comprised the 39 books of that first half of the Bible is a story of learning to call God Father. But it, it doesn't happen by itself. Remember that guy that I talked about who was God's, uh, a man after God's own heart, David, King David, three kings in Israel, you know, Saul, David, and Solomon. David um, was the middle king, and uh, David wrote a bunch of the books that we refer to as psalms. It's the Hebrew word for songs. Song. David was a, was a songwriter. Now, he never charted the billboard, you know, number ones, not that I know of. Um, but, but David wrote uh, over half of the 150 psalms in the Bible. So if you want to find the psalms, typically in your Bible, depending on what kind of print it has, you can open to the middle, and, and you will end up right there. But in Psalm 34, David says this. He says, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You know, it, you can swirl around things. You can, you, you can come to spaces like this. You can be a, a, a consumer of religious activities, but never taste. Taste is getting your fingerprints on the Bible. Taste is letting the door open and inviting God in to say, look, I want to hear from you personally. I want you to be my father, not just my creator. And David lets us know, he sees that, yeah, hey, you, you cannot experience this from afar. You cannot experience it by proxy. You've got to experience it firsthand by yourself. I grew up the first part of my life thinking that because I grew up with parents who were religious and because I went to church all the time. I mean, I was so religious. It was, it was pathetic. I had 12 years. My first 12 years of life, I never missed a Sunday in a church building. But I made the mistake of thinking that because I was, I was born to these parents who were very religious that it's somehow I inherited it, and you can't inherit it. It comes. It comes personally. It comes by inviting God to have a front row seat in your life. David says, taste and see. And what do we taste? What we taste is the experience, especially in the first half of the Bible, that God had with this nation of Israel. These sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Jacob and Isaac. And, and this lineage goes down through Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. Anybody know Jacob's daughter's name? Does it really matter? 
It's Dinah, though, if you're interested. Um, those 12 sons become the nation of Israel, and they fill out this land of Palestine that we, we have so much trouble with today. And these people were a lot like you and I. I mean, if you can ever relate to someone, you know, it, it, it's difficult. This past couple of weeks, it's been so, so hot here. So, so hot. And most of us had air conditioning. And if you're like me, your biggest complaint about it being hot is that when you walked out of your 72-degree household into that 100-degree heat, you couldn't see because your glasses fogged up. I personally know people who live in that heat all the time without air conditioning. I have no idea how they do it. They are the toughest, sweetest, most giving people I know. And they, they don't have a thermostat in their hut at all. And so the Israelis, I mean, the, the, the Jews were like that. Over time, as you read the story of this, you, you see how they were grumbling, complaining, groaning, and all this kind of stuff as God is working with them. But Jeremiah, one of the, the mouthpieces of God during the time that this nation of Israel was in captivity and, and they, had, they had conquering people had come to them. And, and Jeremiah has experienced the unfaithfulness of Israel and the, the people just piss and moan and complain and all that kind of stuff, you know, and just can't, can't ever, God can never do enough for them. And Jeremiah says, because of the love, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You see, the, the fact is, is that when you do taste and see, all of a sudden you begin to have a different experience about this first half of the Bible. It no longer is uh, dusty and cloudy and scary and that kind of stuff. All of a sudden... God becomes clear. You begin to see who he is. And you, you begin to see that he's trustable. Because despite what you don't understand, despite what your, your small, finite mind can really grasp, there's a creator. There, there's an answer to the complexities of this world that not only fit the mind, but soothe the soul. And make it possible for you and I to be able to have this kind of experience where we're able to call the creator God our father. You see, that's the, the tee up of the first half of the Bible. It, it, it's like it, it's setting the ball on the tee so that when the New Testament comes along, when that second half, the New covenant comes along. Jesus comes on the scene. All of a sudden, you see the culmination of everything. 
And Sean's going to get us there next week. But for this week, I would hope, I would hope that, that you might open up the app. We, we put some passages of Scripture in the app. And, and it's just, there are places, like the one I just read today, there are places where you can go and read about the heart of the Father. The Creator God who wants to be our Father, that heart, and begin to see. I start to taste and see if it's good. I begin to see that, that even though there are things I can't understand and I can get through it, I can begin to get my fingerprints on it, and something that I can't explain starts to happen. And it even increases when you begin to do that with other people. When you begin to realize that God just doesn't want to, to be my father. He wants me to live in the family. I got a family here. And let's do this with family. And all of a sudden we realize that as we journey together spiritually, your questions get answered by me and my questions get answered by you. And all of a sudden the community begins to be smarter than we are individually. And we take another step up in terms of what we taste. Our palate for our spiritual life starts to grow and deepen and get richer because we're beginning to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, um, we're, we're grateful that, that you haven't left us here to wander in ourselves. But we struggle. We would admit this morning that uh, this book um, has uh, maybe been used as a weapon against us. It's been held over our head, and, and we have allowed ourselves to believe that you're just a judge sitting in judgment of us. And if we didn't act a certain way, that you didn't want to relate to us. And until we acted a certain way, you wouldn't relate to us. And Father, we just confess that we have let other people influence what we think about your love letter to us. And we want to stop that right now. We want to repent. We want to change the way we think and move in a different direction. So, Father, we give you the, the right this morning to challenge those things in us. And we ask that you would give us the courage to get our fingerprints on the first half of the Bible. Help us to see and hear your love toward us as you relate to Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob, as, as we hear the words of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Malachi, Father, as we hear the words of these, these men and women in the first half of the Bible, help us to see how they are just like us, flesh and blood, people struggling to do life and to find you. Thank you. Thank you that you have given us your son, and we look forward expectantly to next week as we hear from Sean, to be able to, to really put the cherry on top of this thing. And just it's just like the amazing love that you have for us and the desire that you have to relate to us. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.